Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most, brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What really gets to me is the notion that if MLK were alive today, they'd be super fine with him and totally cool. And that fires me up because, of course, they wouldn't. They would make him the sort of avatar for all of their anger regarding racial justice. He would have been probably even more unpopular today with social media than he was in his day. And what you said captures it all. You said he was assassinated. Like you don't get targeted for a killing if you are a popular middle of the road, not raising too much trouble kind of figure. Now, that should tell you everything you need to know about his life and what people thought of him. So to pretend today as if you would have been cool with MLK's writing and speeches and you would have been a supporter of what he stood for in 2024, please get rid of that. Hello, friends. Happy Monday. I hope you're doing well. Welcome back to the podcast. On this episode, I interviewed the one, the only Dr. Jamar Tisby. He wrote the book, The Color of Compromise and the amazing follow-up called How to Fight Racism. And I brought him on to help us understand more about the Martin Luther King Jr. that we just do not know about. Too many of us grew up in white evangelical spaces, and frankly, MLK Day gets incredibly whitewashed. So I brought him on to talk about what did Martin Luther King Jr. actually preach and believe, and why was he so unpopular in his own time and yet so popular today? You're going to hear some unbelievable things about MLK's life and also the opposition he faced, and you might hear some familiar perspectives that still live on today. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Friends, a sincere thank you to all of you who listen to the show, who share the episode, who share the podcast. It means the world to me. Your feedback has been so helpful. And if you want to support the work that we do as a nonprofit organization, you can donate in the link below. We are totally crowdfunded, both the podcast and the Instagram 
and the TikTok and our Facebook community, everything we do as an organization, holding space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocating for accountability in the church, and helping people like you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. All that work is made possible because of your generosity. All donations made in the U.S. are tax deductible, so you can click on the link in the show notes to donate. Thank you so much. It means the world. I appreciate your love and support. I'm so glad that you're here doing this work with us and helping other people find better ways forward in their faith. All right, friends, here's my interview with Dr. Jamar Tisby talking about Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Have a good one. Talk to you later. Hi, my name is Angie. I live in Southern New Hampshire, and I am a monthly donor to the New Evangelicals. I decided to donate because I've experienced the wonderfully supportive T&E Facebook community. I have been deconstructing and decolonizing my faith, and it's been a tremendously lonely journey because I don't have anyone else to talk to about this. When I joined the T&E Facebook group, I felt so welcomed and included, and I have thought many times, I have found my people. This just feels wonderful. We have all had different experiences with evangelicalism. We are all at different stages in examining our faith tradition. Everyone in the group doesn't share the same spirituality, but the thing that we do share is that we are of one mind being supportive of each other. I believe in the work that TNE is doing. I want others to experience this too. Thanks so much. Right, Dr. Jamar Tisby, the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend. It is truly a pleasure to have you on the podcast again. Uh, thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. Well, likewise, I appreciate the invitation, especially with such an important topic. I don't mind being called on for this every single year because it's important. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree more and more. The more I, I uh, do this work myself, the more I think this is a very important topic. You are the author of two amazing books. You wrote The Color of Compromise, which not only is a New York Times bestseller, but made a huge impact on my personal journey of understanding my own tradition's complicity in racism and white supremacy and just things that I never knew. And so I want to thank you again, just personally for the impact that your book has had on me. And your second book, How to Fight Racism, was also so helpful for me. And that book came out, I think, what, a year and a half ago now, is it about? It came out on uh, January 5th. 2021. And then January 6th became a a date etched in all of our memories. So I'll never forget that book anniversary. (laughs) I believe it. So you're writing a new book, is that correct? Yes, yes. It actually dovetails with Both of the ones that you said, my new book, you know how we keep having these conversations about racism and sometimes it seems like we haven't made any progress at all. So, I mean, it can get really discouraging. It can make you feel disillusioned. But what I find even more remarkable than sort of the persistence of racism is the persistence of people fighting racism. So in every era of U.S. history, no matter how difficult the situation, no matter how tough the obstacles, there are people who tapped into something, hmm. some sort of strength, some sort of power that give them gave them the will and the ability to resist. And I call that something the spirit of justice. And that's my next book. It's called The Spirit of Justice, Stories of Faith, Race, and Resistance. It's a historical survey like The Color of Compromise was, but instead of lo- looking at the people who compromise with racism, We're going to look at the people who courageously confronted it because of their faith. 
I love that. I'm looking forward to reading that book and getting you on the podcast again to have that discussion. That was my ask. I was going to message you, kind of <laughs> nudge you, wink, wink. Hey, when the book comes out, that's coming out in September. So hopefully you won't be sick of me. You know it's a done deal. Anytime you want to come on, I'm happy to have you on. And this actually works out really well because I, I did contact you about a week ago and said, hey, MLK Day is coming up. I want to have you on the podcast because my tradition really now that I know more and more, really whitewashed who MLK was and really throughout my tradition picked very selective quotes to kind of fit this colorblind narrative that, oh, MLK was all about colorblindness and he was not that extreme. And as I, again, was reading books like yours and doing some other research, I'm like, actually, MLK was very much not, his his approval ratings were, were horrible among white people in particular. And he was assassinated, brought this up to you. And you said, Oh, I'm actually, I just wrote a chapter about MLK in my book. I'm like, perfect. This is a match made in heaven. So I, I really want to start here for you. Just maybe personally, what, what is it that really grinds your gears the most when you hear in particular, the white evangelical church on MLK day, bring up MLK as if they've always been in the spirit of MLK's justice initiatives. What really gets to me is the notion that if MLK were alive today, they'd be super fine with him and totally cool. And that fires me up because of course they wouldn't. They would make him the sort of avatar for all of their anger regarding racial justice. He would have been probably even more unpopular today with social media mm. than he was mm. in his day. And what you said captures it all. You said he was assassinated. Like, you don't get targeted for a killing if you are a popular, middle-of-the-road, not raising too much trouble kind of figure. Now, that should tell you everything you need to know about his life and what people thought of him. So to pretend today as if you would have been cool with MLK's writing and speeches and you would have been a supporter of what he stood for in 2024, please get rid of that. Mm, mm. I think that's very fair. Let's start with 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 the MLK that that maybe folks like me did not do not know still and are trying to unpack and learn about. What got MLK into his his justice work? I mean, he was a Baptist minister, a man of faith obviously. What was it for him that got him into becoming what became a very iconic figure in American history? So the biographical details of MLK's life are super important and we tend to skip over those and we go to the speeches and the quotes and maybe the books. But before I jump into that, let's talk just a second about memory. Okay. Memory is, is not just the stuff that happened. It's how we interpret the stuff that happens. And memory has to be constantly evaluated and reevaluated. And to even begin, you have to have the raw data of history in order to build memory. So first of all, let's, let's all sort of give ourselves a little grace and realize that in our educational system, our teachers are tasked with disseminating way more information than they possibly could do in an efficient manner. So the reality is most of us didn't learn this in school. Okay, that, that is what it is. We got to deal with the reality. The problem is, even if we realize we didn't learn as much as we need to in school, we are not going back and filling in the gaps on our own. Most mm. of us have what I call an impressionistic view of history. And in particular, we have an impressionistic view of the civil rights movement, which means we have impressions of what happened, but not actual details and facts. So 
then our imaginations fill in the gaps. So a lot of people will say about the civil rights movement or Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, yeah, I know about him. I know what he stood for. It. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. You know about Rosa Parks. You know about the bus boycott. You might know about the I have a dream speech. Rather, you know, one or two quotes from the I have a dream speech. And that's mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. with you have all these factual and data gaps. And guess what fills it in? Because nature abhors a vacuum. It's not going to stay just empty or blank. We fill it in with our imagination. And that's what's happened to Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. We have an imagined king completely separate from the actual living, breathing human being who was Martin Luther King Jr. And that's what this episode is about. And that's, I think, the broader task. By the way, while I'm on my soapbox, can I just say, <laughs> history is more than sound bites. History is more than a reel or a quote or a clip. And listen, all credit to folks on social media or in the media in general who are bringing historical truths to the public. Let's just bear in mind that history is not just these bite-sized snippets that we can schedule and share online. Hmm. History is, is a constant flow of people and events. And this is the work of historians, is we study the continuity and the discontinuity in history as part of a bigger picture. So that's what I want to remind folks of when we think about Martin Luther King Jr. He's part of a bigger picture and a bigger flow of time. Here's what I mean. Number one, we are talking about MLK, and I think we should because of the place that he has in our historical memory. But we should also know that he was one of a constellation of people many of whom were women, many of whom did not get recognition, one of whom, just to name one, is Coretta Scott King, who was recently in the news when Jonathan Majors, the the actor, said that his girlfriend, Megan Good, stood by him him like a Coretta, Mm. basically sort of minimizing Coretta Scott's King role to that of spouse and supporter when she was so much more from a renowned singer to a nonviolent activist even before she met MLK, to an outspoken opponent of Vietnam before MLK went public with his opposition, and she was a steward of his memory and of nonviolence for decades after her husband's assassination. So that's one piece that we should be aware of. History is not just these larger-than-life figures like MLK. The other piece that we got to be aware of with history is there's stuff that came before and there's stuff that came after. So many people don't realize that the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s was a direct outgrowth of the protest movements during the Jim Crow era, namely the labor movement and ways that people, workers were organizing for fair wages and better working conditions to the extent that the March on Washington in 1963 was just a replay of a march that was supposed to happen in the early 1940s about government contracts during World War II only going out to white businesses. And there was a protest that was threatened to to come to D.C. for Mm. these government contracts to go out to people of any race or ethnicity. And FDR got so spooked by the idea of 100,000 black people descending on the Capitol that he actually issued an executive order that opened it up. Now, it wasn't that effective, but that's Mm. even the threat of a march did have that impact. So I say all that before we even get into King's life uh, to to help people 
reframe their understanding of history. We talk about MLK and we should understand there's a whole bunch of other folks, folks behind me. Mm. We've got Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer in this picture. They're, they're at a rally for the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and they were trying to get black representatives seated for the election. Anyway, there's a whole constellation of folks, many of whom include black women, who we don't talk about. And in addition, there is a flow of events. This, you know, MLK, his speeches, his writings, his nonviolent activism didn't just drop into history from mm -hmm. out of nowhere. He was part of a stream and a flow of people working for civil rights for literally generations. This is really important context. And this is why I like having folks like you on, because I'm not a historian and people like you have done the hard and tedious work to really help people like me and people listening to the show understand the complexity of these things. Because I, to your point, you're totally correct, right? I mean, history for any one human, it's impossible to have it all in your head. Um, my, if, if someone was was to tell my story, you couldn't tell every single second or every single day. You have to pick and choose which parts you want to highlight to, to draw the narrative. Because the reality is people can draw different narratives about us in different ways. Someone could tell my story as a drummer or my story as someone who started TNE, and you can leave both of those parts out of each story, and they're both still accurate, but not the whole story of what makes Tim, Tim, right, right for example. So yeah. I appreciate you giving the backstory to all this and also to the cultural moment and moments over the decades that was a part of what led up to people like MLK starting the work. So with that in the background, that that little crash course, give us the backstory into MLK and kind of how he starts to rise um, in, in, in this tradition of fighting for equality and equity. So as we look at MLK's early life, I think it's significant that this is a middle class kid, which was pretty rare in his days. He was born in 1929. He was the middle child of three children. His his mother raised the children. His daddy uh, was a preacher, so he's a preacher's kid. But it was a well-established church, Ebenezer Church in Atlanta. His dad was very well-respected and known throughout the city as one of the most prominent Black Baptist ministers in the city. Their church was a historic black church with a large congregation. And so MLK comes into a family, and he would have been somewhat atypical, particularly in the South. So A, he's in an urban environment. B, he's solidly middle class. C, he's somewhat protected from the worst effects of racism because his father's paycheck doesn't depend on white people. Hmm. A lot of black people faced severe repression because they were working for white employers or beholden somehow to the white community for their financial well-being, mm. uh, black ministers would have been a little bit more independent of that. Although, you know, if the white power structure wanted to silence you, they could do it. So that's the context. So he's educated and he's very, very precocious, extremely intelligent. He's also extremely emotional. So there's a story, his, his, his grandmother, who he was very close to, dies. And he's young, younger than 10 years old or something. But he's so mm. affected when he hears the news. He goes to the second floor of their house, another sort of middle class indicator that you have a second floor. And he jumps out of the window in a, in a sort of suicide attempt. He's, he's not hurt. He's fine. But that's how deeply he was feeling, even as a child. So wow. you have this combination of intelligence and empathy that I think we see reflected throughout the course of his life. Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. 
What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. Friends, it's no secret that Christian nationalism is on the rise and threatens the rights of all of our neighbors. You also know I'm a big believer in shared values over shared beliefs, and you know that we are committed to working together with all kinds of folks to protect democracy in 2023. That's why I'm proud to let you know about the Summit for Religious Freedom hosted by Americans United taking place in Washington, D.C. April 14th through the 16th. I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited because keynote speakers include Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism, who we've had on the show before, and Representative Jamie Raskin, a vocal opponent of authoritarianism and Christian nationalism. The Summit for Religious Freedom is a big tent full of all kinds of people from different walks of life and holding different beliefs, uniting under the shared value of protecting the rights of all of our neighbors. So grab a ticket, let's hang out and learn all about the ways we can resist Christian nationalism and protect freedom for all. Go to the srf.org for more information. And if you can't make it in person, that's okay. You can always grab a digital ticket and join us from virtually anywhere. Get it? That's T-H-E-S-R-F dot org, hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, April 14th through the 16th. I'll see you there. So is there a moment or series of moments that gets MLK to really start finding his lane of what he wants to speak out publicly about? Like, was there something that happened in his town or in the state or in the nation's ethos that, that, that got him launched into more, I guess we can call it activism work? Yeah, so to say that MLK was middle class and you know was was somewhat insulated from the worst effects of racism doesn't mean that he didn't see it or experience it at all. He recalls being very close as sort of elementary age child to a white kid, but as they got older, there was a conversation that the white parents had with their white son and said you can't play with him anymore. He's black. You know, mm-hmm. well he's negro, right? So that deeply affected King from an early age. But King's also deeply shaped by the church. He's again, he's a preacher's kid. So he's at the church, you know, almost every day. He called the church literally, quote, his second home. Mm. And he sensed a call to ministry early in life. He was baptized pretty young, but he also sensed a call to preaching and was actually ordained to the ministry by his father in 1948 at, at the age of 19 years old. So this is a guy who who knew pretty early on he was going to have some sort of formal connection to the church. And that sort of directed his educational endeavors. So again, he's very precocious and he goes to Morehouse College. He goes to Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania for his master's. Then he goes to Boston University for his PhD in theology. So seminary, a PhD in theology, he really wanted to have a life in the pulpit and a life in the classroom. He sort of saw himself as preaching and ministering in a local church context, but also a man of letters uh, who could 
write and and speak from an academic context about theology. Uh, but of course, that quickly sort of takes a turn, and he doesn't have much time for scholarship because he's thrust into activism also at a very early age. This might not be of the best way to put this question, but I'm wondering, and I'm kind of reading into my own context. You know, a lot of people tend to put this uh, this divide between the political motivation for something versus the theological motivation, right? Like I, I often ask myself, is Christian nationalism motivated by politics first or theology first, for example? Which mm-hmm. someone like MLK, mm-hmm. is it his theology that motivates him more than the political or like, I guess, the, the social work? Or is it a combination of both? Because obviously he was ordained at age 19. Theology must, at that age, you know, when you're ordaining or going saying at 19, I want to go into ministry. That's a pretty serious conviction of a certain theological perspective in the Christian tradition that can, is all encompassing in your life. But also there's this other thing happening in the general American system, right, of, of, of a quest for, for, for equality under the law. So from best you can tell, is it a hybrid? Is it one or the other? What's the primary motivation for MLK here? I think some of this gets at perhaps some of the differences between Black Christian theology and uh, theology coming from more European or white folks. So there is not a stark separation between theology and activism or even politics. Matter of fact, there was a 19th century abolitionist minister that said a, a, a minister cannot do his whole duty except but that he looks out for the political interests of his people. Mm. There's a minister saying this about his black congregation because there was a sense in which how can you actually minister to serve and shepherd your people when they don't have voting rights, when they're under the yoke of either slavery or Jim Crow, when there's lynchings, multiple lynchings every week, and you don't address that theologically, you don't address that from your pulpit. Uh, Another person you're going to want to have on your show is Dr. Malcolm Foley. He's out at Baylor University, and uh, he's writing a book now on a theology of anti-lynching in Mm. the Jim Crow era. And so there's reams of information out there in the form of sermons and songs and other materials where preachers are addressing social issues theologically. Everything from, like I said, voting rights and lynching to, um, you know, our, our dignity as, as uh, African-descended people. So there isn't this stark separation. And with King, he's got these lived experiences of racism. He's hearing Black people talk about God and racism all the time in different contexts. He would have grown up with that. And he was very socially conscious even at a young age. So you can look at his papers in seminary, and he's talking about how to incorporate all of this erudite, almost exclusively European theology, and applying it to the Black context. The last thing I'll say on it is, for any oppressed people, and Black people in the U.S. in particular, the test of one's theology is not the books you write or how precisely you word a statement. The test of one's theology is your ethics, how you live your beliefs, your faith. And so that's what would have been at the forefront of folks like MLK, is how does all this book learning translate into justice and equity and love for neighbor? There's a whole rabbit hole we could explore. Maybe I'll have to bring you back on that conversation in particular, because I think it's a really 
it's a really important point, especially for our audience to understand, right? It, again, this is another reminder that that maybe for us who grew up in the white evangelical tradition and we're taught these these so-called absolutes of what it means to be a Christian, it's a lot more complicated than that. And there are other traditions that would see things very differently and for very good reason, to your point, right? When you are an oppressed people group, especially in this case, Black Americans, who cares about, about how nice you can say things? What is your ethic? How are you loving your neighbor who is under the thumb of empire? Right. And having voting rights stripped away and experiencing consistent embodied violence towards you just because of who you are made in the image of God. So I think that, that that's a really great point. I, I want to shift a little bit. So so MOK, Martin Luther King Jr. starts speaking in, again in your estimation, based on, on what, what you've read and how you understand it. What was it that 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 gave him the rise that led to him being, you know, and I want to preface, I understand your point in the beginning of that it's more complicated than just one figure, granted, but he still is a very iconic figure. And even then what was, was it, was it his speaking style? Was it how he worded things? Was it just his, his ethos? This happens all the time, right? Some people get elevated and you're just like, what is it about this person that got that person to where they are now? What do you think it is for MLK? I think it's a that's a great question and a, and, a, and a great analogy too. Like there are people right now who go viral, and you're like, what what happened? Like why this person? Um, <laughs> and it's this you know unpredictable combination. You know, on a very very shallow level, MLK looks good, and he sounds good. He's telegenic, right? So um, when he becomes the leader of uh, the Montgomery Improvement Association, MIA, is the organization that, that put together the Montgomery bus boycott. Rosa Parks refuses to move her seat, which, by the way, she's not just a little old lady. First of all, she was in her, her like 40s, so she's not old. And then secondly, she was already involved with the NAACP and advocating for women uh, victims of abuse and violence. And anyway, that's a whole other thing. But point being, when... Rosa Parks refused to move and they decided, okay, this is the case that we're going to use to to make a broader push for desegregation. They were having their initial meetings and they have this brand new young preacher and his wife, pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, which is not a really huge or significant town politically or economically in a lot of ways, but he's got his PhD? What is that about? Well, he got some letters and learning. He's handsome, and boy, this boy can preach. He mm. is, he can, he can speak. And so they actually, uh, somebody essentially nominates him. And King, you know, not really expecting this, says, Well, if I can be of any service, I'll do it. Mind you, this was part of King's vision for what pastoring would look like. He wanted to be a community-involved, justice-involved pastor. He already had critiques of Black ministers who basically used their position as one of comfort and privilege, who, mm -hmm. because they had comfort and privilege as ministers, didn't really get uh, vocally or actively involved in the struggle for civil rights because that would have jeopardized their position. So he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to replicate that. Now, he couldn't have predicted the Montgomery bus boycott, but when the opportunity came along, he was the guy. And really, you know, it was his early speeches, the ways that he was literally able to put into words the heart and soul of the struggle of black folks. And the fact that the boycott attracted national attention, it took a year and it was ultimately successful. I wonder if he would have still been MLK 
as we remember him today, if the bus boycott hadn't worked or had faced greater opposition to the point where it, you know, died off earlier or something. Nevertheless, mm. this is the way things turned out. Yeah, um, very helpful. Um, and you're right. I, I was listening to a few of his sermons recently in prep for this uh, conversation. And I was thinking to myself, this guy, what an orator, you know, uh, I mean, just can really say things in, in very eloquent ways and very understandable ways and just really good. And also even like his cadence, it just kind of grabbed your attention, mm. right? The, 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 the rhythm yeah. that he had. Yeah, ex- exactly. Let's, I, and this is kind of the meat of the discussion for me. I, I think oftentimes, and again, for me, everything is filtered for the, through that white evangelical lens that I grew up in, because I, I want to kind of posit this uh, compared to what we actually know. But so much of my understanding was that, hey, MLK was this nice guy who just wanted everyone to get along. And, you know, it wasn't about the color of someone's skin. And But but the more I've, I've listened, I'm like, this guy had it, first off, he advocated for things beyond just racial issues. Um, it was workers' rights and the the poor people's campaign, I believe, or something along those lines. That's right. And that's I'm right. thinking to my, I'm thinking to myself, this guy had had some stuff to say. And then I listened to more of his sermons. I'm like, some of this stuff is pretty radical. I mean, easily would be labeled today as some uh, quote unquote, forgive the language, woke Marxist communist or something like that. You know, I mean, it, it would be so easy to see MLK being painted that way today. What are some of the views that you think people who don't really know, need to know. What are some of the views about MLK regarding his social work uh, need to come to the forefront for this discussion? MLK, toward the end of his life, really distilled his civil rights and justice work into three areas, which he called the three evils. The three evils are poverty, militarism, and racism. So the racism one are, are, are pretty forthright. We know about that. But the poverty and the militarism one, let me just say, MLK would have a lot to say about what's happening in Israel with Hamas right now and and really with Palestine right now. He would have a lot to say, a lot to oppose it, to be honest. And any armed conflict, he would have had a lot to say about Iraq and Afghanistan and any sort of armed conflict about drones. He He would have had a lot to say about that because he saw militarism as a global threat. Now, understand this is still in sort of the Cold War era, the era of (laughs) mutually assured destruction through nuclear weapons, and people are still trying to grapple and wrestle with that. But he's also, the further he gets into his uh, public work in justice, aware of global uprisings around the world, uh, whether in Asia or Africa, places like South America, and the ways that the military and law enforcement literally, literally gets weaponized against protest movements and against civil rights struggles. So that was a huge concern for him. Another huge concern was was poverty. And we can we can get all into that. But what stuck out to MLK was not just poverty writ large, but poverty in wealthy nations, because that was a poverty that didn't have to exist. Mm. There were the resources to give everyone everything they need and the only reason they didn't get it was greed. So he had he was very pointed in his uh, critiques of uh, poverty and financial inequality. I would imagine he would have a lot to say about the reality that during COVID, uh, the the top one percent in America exploded in terms of wealth. Corporations had a record-setting profits. Um, meanwhile, it's been what I think three decades now. We can't get a federal minimum wage raised. We're still trying to fight for affordable health care. The, the wage gap between 
all different groups of people is still very disproportionate when it comes to the average black wage versus the average white wage and women and men. I mean, all these things. I mean, it, 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 it is simultaneously discouraging and encouraging to know that, okay, people saw it back then, but we're having, to your point earlier, the same conversations trying to fight for things that even compared to other nations that we compete with are doing when it comes to things like, for example, affordable healthcare, right? Like anecdotal evidence here, but whenever I talk to people uh, on social media about this and we get people from outside the US, they cannot believe that there are people in America who would rather drive themselves to the hospital if they're having a major health problem than take an ambulance ride because they're afraid of the cost. They're afraid of a surprise bill for thousands of dollars that they can't afford. They're literally, I have DMs saying, I can't believe that's how it is in America. And here we are in 2024 and it's the same issue. So I I think that that MLK's work in that field in particular goes very underrepresented, um, and there's so much we can learn from regarding his fight for all people who were poor or or marginalized by you know maybe larger corporations or capitalism, however he would he would put it, uh, for a fair wage, a livable wage as, as a worker. So here's a, a fun quote people will love to take out of context. This is early on in MLK's life. He's still, I think, a student at this point, and he's writing a letter to Coretta Scott King. This is before they got married. They, they're such nerds. They, they like exchange books and then talk about them in their letters. It's so romantic. <laughs> but he was, uh, he was responding in a letter, and he said, I'm much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. And then he goes on and says, Let's, let us continue to hope, work, and pray that in the future we will live to see a warless world, a better distribution of wealth, and a brotherhood that transcends race or color. This is the gospel I'll preach to all the world. So again, this is nascent. This is early in his career. And then as he gets sort of more sophisticated in his thinking, there's another uh, address in which he says, whether the solution be in a guaranteed annual wage negative income tax or any other economic device, the direction of the Negro demands has to be towards substantive economic security. So Mm -hmm. he's here advocating for a guaranteed income, basically saying we have enough money that even if someone doesn't have a job, they can have an income. And there's actually been contemporary experiments with this that have yielded extremely positive results. Most people who oppose something like universal basic income would say, well, people are just going to waste it. And the reality is what they use that money for is to buy food, clothes, and shelter. And when they do that, then they go for education and jobs. And so MLK and others in his era were well aware of this and well aware that the United States had plenty of money. So MLK says in an, in an article, no, this is in his... Um, Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech. He says, the, minis- the misery of the poor in Africa and Asia is shared misery, a fact of life for the vast majority. They're all poor together as a result of the years of exploitation and underdevelopment. In sad contrast, the poor in America know that they live in the richest nation in the world and that even though they are perishing on a lonely island of poverty, they are surrounded by a vast ocean of material prosperity. And so he says that if that if man is to redeem his spiritual and moral lag, he must go roll out, go all out to bridge the social and economic gulf between the haves and the have-nots of the world. Um, if um, I don't know, I'm, I'm I'm riffing here. If Dr. Cornell West wrote that exact same thing today, 
it would be just as timely now. It would be lit up by the Sean Hannity's and the Charlie Kirk's of the world as look how radical this person is as he fights for woke Marxism and socialism and wants to destroy America. I mean, literally, you, you, you could take that quote and put it in 2024 and people would not know it's MLK and think, oh, yeah, this makes complete sense. Because, again, we're having the same conversations. I tell people often we are still the world's richest nation and cannot get affordable health care for even the least of these mm-hmm. in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O dot com. Hey, I'm Shane Claiborne from Red Letter Christians, and I am proud to team up with the New Evangelicals and Project Amplify because Christianity is in crisis in America. There are a lot of folks who are trying to camouflage their bigotry or hatred or exclusion in the name of Christ. But at the end of the day, the word Christian means Christ-like. And so we're called to look like Jesus, to love like Jesus. Jesus said we will be known by our love. So let's reclaim Jesus. Let's take the good news of the gospel back. And I want you to join me uh, for this project, Project Amplify, because as my friend Reverend Barber says, the way that we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. And some of the loudest voices representing Christianity haven't always been the most Christ-like or the most loving or faithful or beautiful. It's time to change that. It's maddening. If I'm just being honest with you, it is maddening to think that that here we are so many decades past what MLK was bringing up and, of course, many others. And here we are having the same fights. and, and, And the progress, in my opinion, sometimes just seems like it's so little. And I, this is kind of where I wanted to go as we started to, to land the plane a little bit. Is it, it is insufferable to me how right wing conservative evangelical spaces now will still put up an MLK quote as if as if, if if he was still alive today they'd be all on board for his message when we all know they wouldn't. And it, it's 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 just very frustrating to witness time and time again. I don't know. I mean, you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it's not really a question. It's more me just venting to you, but it just, it just drives me bonkers. It is infuriating because the game the, the far right plays is, ooh, look at this shiny object. Now, everybody turn their heads yeah. and go talk about it. And oftentimes that shiny object is something that people would have had pretty much universal agreement on, whether it was approval or disapproval. And then what they'll do is intentionally flip it to be incendiary. And it it brings to mind the quote that 
the true function of racism is distraction. Wow. So what the far right does is manufacture controversy to distract us from the genuine justice issues that we should be paying attention to. So what happens is we, people of goodwill, I would say, have to, we got to respond to what they're saying because if we don't, then, you know, vulnerable people will think it's the truth. And there has to be an antiphonal voice to say, no, 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 that's not what happened or that's not how we think about this. But at the same time, not just a defensive posture. We have to go on an offense to, to, to say we shouldn't be so focused on this that we forget about this other thing. So, you know, we shouldn't be so focused on refuting their, their co-opting of MLK that we forget to actually work for and promote what MLK stood for. That's what's infuriating is it sucks the energy and it sucks the attention away from what's positive good. And this is just me doing conjecture too. The far right needs to appropriate heroes because they don't have real heroes of their own. Mm. Not that they don't have people on the far right that the far right looks up to, but they don't have people that sort of universally are admired for their work for humanity. I mean, who would you name in that camp or that category that everyone would be like, you know, yeah, that's somebody whose example we should emulate and follow. So what they have to do is take <laughs> these, these folks like Martin Luther King Jr. And either they co-opt their legacy to fit within the far-right agenda, or they try to attack that person's legacy and make it so they are not as respected and not as revered. Um, but really, it's, it's, a, it's a poverty of moral and ethical exemplars in their own camps so they have to go and either latch on to someone else or take that person down. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to um, open this can of worms here. I'm actually going to do another episode probably this week on it. But I think to your point, we are seeing a shift, especially in the far right, from that appropriation of those heroes to now that destruction of those heroes. Because uh, Charlie Kirk, a name that our audience knows well, I just discovered yeah. as of this recording, is planning a pretty large smear campaign against MLK and was quoted at America Fest, which I did not hear, but I read a news article that had the quote, uh, where he said that, that that the civil rights movement was, was, was the wrong thing. It was a huge mistake. It should never have happened. So now we're starting to see really the hoods come off, so to speak, right? We're really starting to see what was what used to be dog whistling. Oh, I didn't mean it like that. It's not what you think. Now they're just saying the quiet parts out loud. Like, yeah, the civil rights were, they were bad. They were, it was a bad thing. So we're going to cover that in a, in a later episode. Um, I have someone I, I, uh, who's a um, historian of, of the KKK and things like that. We're going to do a AB comparison because I'm convinced more than ever that uh, Turning Point is the new KKK in 2024, flat out between uh, all the rhetoric. Last mm. question I have for you about this, and again, uh, Jamar, I appreciate you taking time and, and, and helping our audience understand the MLK that we don't know and giving uh, just a little bit more uh, context. You know, MLK seemed to have some, maybe arguably, I don't know, his most vitriolic you know, words were, were aimed towards the white moderate. It seemed like he was pretty fed up and frustrated with, you know, the people who were like, yeah, we support your cause, but you're a little too extreme for us kind of vibes. And I could see him again, talking to quite a few pastors that I know who try to play that middle ground of, well, we're just here to preach the gospel, right? To our point earlier, it's, it's not about politics. It's about just preaching the gospel. 
what are your thoughts? I mean, you're you're a historian, you're you're a scholar of history, you you are researching MLK for a book, you you write about this stuff all the time. What do you think about the the white moderate in 2024? I mean, do, have you seen more of that, or do you are you starting to see people being drawn to one side or the other instead of that like so called white moderate spot? So, just for context, King gives his most pointed critique of what he calls the 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 white moderate. <laughs> in his speech, his his uh, letter from Birmingham jail. And he said, I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. There's more. But I think not only was King angry with the white moderate, he was hurt by them. He felt a sense of betrayal because they portrayed themselves as allies. But when it came time to take a stand and to stand with, they shrank back. And that was more hurtful than the Ku Klux Klaner, who made their hatred known, who made their stances known. And I think the same thing can be seen today. If we think back to not that long ago, the racial justice uprisings of 2020, all the commitments made by corporations, organizations, even Christian churches and nonprofits to racial progress, whether that was allocating money, hiring more staff, supporting organizations, all of that evaporated in the blink of an eye. I mean, it's, it's, it's not even three years. Yeah. It's barely three years after that, right? And we can say, not only did we not make progress, it seems like we went backward. And we, so, I mean, the question is, I mean, I got this phrase behind me that says justice takes sides and, and a whole brand that says justice takes sides to address this issue. And I have your hoodie that says justice takes sides. <laughs> I appreciate it. I've seen it in some of your stories and reels. Um, and it's really, it really comes out of this, this frustration particularly on the part of Christians that say, well, both sides have some things wrong. I can't really advocate wholeheartedly for one side or the other. So I'm just going to, you know, play the middle, which is actually to me pretty arrogant because it says that you have some secret knowledge that, that, that puts you above and outside of the conflict. Uh, somehow you are more enlightened than, than the people actually working for a cause because you have this, this alternative viewpoint where you don't have to take a side. And we don't like picking sides because then we come, become associated with everything that side stands for, even if we don't agree. And that's the problem with binaries oftentimes, where, like particularly in politics, yeah. where it's going to be a Republican or a Democrat in the White, White House. And nobody who even supports that their, their own party agrees with what their own, everything their own party says, but we don't have other choices. Um, nevertheless, taking it out of the realm of politics into the side of justice in one of his speeches, he says, you know, the struggle isn't between black and white. The struggle is between justice and injustice. And that's what I mean by justice takes sides. It's not, you know, adhering to your political group. It's not favoring the people who are most like you. It's, are you on the side of justice or injustice? And if you are a person of faith, someone who calls himself Christian, then that's not as ambiguous as people make it out to be. That God says, this is how I want you to treat people, and this is how I don't want you to treat people. People on the far right hate the word 
oppressed and oppressor, but those are Bible words. They're all over the Bible. Right. So that means read the Exodus story. Yes. I mean, God literally drowns the oppressors, which is a little too violent in my in my opinion. But you get the point. Exactly. You know? So it, the point is, it's not you know these modern CRT woke liberal left people coming up with this concept of oppressor and oppressed. This is the God of justice saying, here's an ordered world the way I want it. Here's a disordered world the way you've made it. And I'm on the side of justice, right? When Joshua sees the angel of the Lord and says, are you for us or for our enemy? And the angel says, no, but I'm, I'm the angel of the Lord. What's the angel saying? I'm not on your side or your side, politically speaking, militarily speaking, uh, geopolitics speaking. I am on the side of justice, which is to say the side of God, right? And so that's where we need to line up ourselves. The, the moderate says, I don't want to get involved in the persecution or the conflict or the suffering that might come with taking the side of justice, which means solidarity with the oppressed. And what MLK is saying is, oh, you got to throw down. You're either serious about this or you aren't. And don't pretend as if you're serious. And then when the moment comes for you to actually be in solidarity with us, be like, oh, no, 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 let's just, you know, leave this to leave this out of the pulpit. That's a political, social issue, and we shouldn't touch it as Christians. Rant over. You can call me any day of the week and say, I want to rant on your podcast, and I will hit record and let you rant. So it's an open door policy here <laughs> because I think you're right on the money. I think you're 100% right. And I also think, look at where the this so-called moderate position got us, especially in white evangelicalism. They are now the breeding ground for Christian nationalism. So it's actually not very moderate, is it? It's actually quite mm. extreme because when you have people like mm. Charlie Kirk going to churches, saying things about the great replacement theory, which you and I both know is a straight up David Duke KKK talking point, right? When people like Tucker Carlson are revered as people who are telling the truth in these spaces, when Trump is overwhelmingly supported by 80% of white evangelicals in 2016 and through 2020, when we know that at least at one point, 75% of white evangelicals thought the election was stolen at one moment in history. And we all know that it's still rampantly, um, beliefs like that are still rampant in these spaces. That's not very moderate, is it? No, it's not. So this this white moderate language does bring people in certain directions, and it's frankly now I'm ranting and I'll stop. But it, it's been uh, it's been tragically abysmal to watch my own faith tradition just do a dive down the descent of madness, politically speaking, and what they will tolerate mm -hmm. versus what they will not shocks me. There are people out there. Who will say, well, Jonathan Edwards, you know, like, yeah, maybe he owns some people, but he had good things to say. And then will tell me that my queer Christian friend isn't a real, a real Christian. Like, are that's where you're going to draw the line? Like, give me a freaking break, you know? So anyway, I, I'm with you on that all the way. Last, last, last point, and then we'll, and then we'll get you out of here. Colorblindness, briefly. I think that one of the biggest mm. um, myths is this idea of colorblindness. And uh, Jesse Curtis's book did a really good unpacking of the history of colorblindness and where that came from. Isaac Sharp in his book, The Other Evangelicals, talks about it a little bit. Talk to me about, from your perspective, again, as a historian, as someone who knows um, way more about MLK than I, uh, I do, how does colorblindness kind of become the new way of pushing for that maintaining of status quo, which just so happened to keep, you know, people some people who were white at the top and people who were not at the bottom. We talk to you about, about, about that shift over time. Colorblindness offers white people absolution. 
So immediately following some of the sort of more high points of the civil rights movement, when public opinion is starting to sway and say, you know what, this segregation thing is not very fair. We shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. That was only one part of the equation. The other part was not just taking away the limits and restrictions, but actually proactively working toward repair and justice and equity. But the colorblindness trope says we shouldn't, we shouldn't take differences into account at all. We should treat all people the same, which sounds really good when you say it, but it's divorced of context that says we haven't at all treated people the same. And therefore, when it comes to remedying situations of inequality and injustice, there has to be particular contextual attention paid to what each people group needs. So we often talk about this in the context of affirmative action, which has come under attack Mm -hmm. recently. And there was this big court case about Ivy League schools, really not the the court case. Supreme Court said you cannot take race into account for admissions, which has been, you know, a decades long precedent. And the way MLK talked about it, he didn't use the phrase affirmative action, but in his final book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, which is sort of his prescription for what needs to be done. He said the nation must incorporate in its planning some compensatory consideration for the handicaps the Negro has inherited from his past. So compensatory consideration is his phrase for what we would call affirmative action. Then he goes on to say, a society that has done something special against the Negro for hundreds of years must now do something special for him. By which he's saying, it's not grant, um, you know, exceptional status as if black people are better than white people. It's to acknowledge that when it comes to discrimination, black people were discriminated in particular ways that white people were not, and therefore it must be addressed in particular ways. So treating all people the same isn't going to help black people who have for so long been treated as lesser and other. So colorblindness, first of all, (laughs) it strikes me that um, in the Bible, blindness is something that Jesus healed, (laughs) not something that Jesus promoted. So why would we want to go back to that state of blindness, right? Today, we discuss Miro. Listen, when it comes to running client workshops, the dream, of course, is to get those creative juices flowing, right? But typically what ends up happening is thousands of hours get wasted because of poorly facilitated meetings. So I have Maya with me today. She's a consultant who runs Fortune 100 workshops from leadership training to team building, and she has the insider tip on what makes things work. Maya? Thank you, Jason. I've been doing this a long time. My number one tip is to bring everyone into that visual collaboration platform. So personally, I use Miro and it's completely changed how I interact with the room. You have to give people a way to feel like they're in the room even when they're not. That's something you can do easily in Miro. Otherwise, they've seen the same slides and format thousand times. Falling asleep, eyes glazing over, yawns, all that. Exactly. When people follow me on the Miro board, everyone is literally going on a journey with me. We're adding thoughts, we're reacting, and we're voting for the best ideas. It's great. Connective magic. I like it. That's M-I-R-O.com. The insulting part about colorblindness is that for you to look at me on this podcast or, or wherever and see me as just a person but not a black person is actually not to see me. 
It's to ignore a massive part of what makes me, me. And I don't want you to forget that I'm black. I don't want you to pretend as if I'm not black because there's a beauty and a richness and a culture that comes from that that is part of who I am. And a lot of uh, people of color and black people feel that way too. Um, so I understand the the intent behind it for a lot of people, which is I want to treat all people the same. Uh, the the antidote, antidote to discrimination is you know non-discrimination. Really, the antidote to discrimination is particular forms of repair that pay attention to the particular forms of discrimination one has received. Yeah, I mean, if you and I are, are about to race and I uh, break your leg and then tie you to the starting line, uh, just because uh, someone unties you doesn't mean that somehow your leg was healed and that somehow now everything is fine, right? Okay, you, you can run now. You're untied, but your leg's still right. broken, right? Um, and so, yes, I, I think what you just described is is very helpful. And again, I think I, I think our audience probably hears a lot of these things out there just in, in social media. Oh, colorblindness. They don't know really how to respond to it or how to think about it differently. And uh, I'm glad that you were able to just help us when it comes to that because I think that is a big push that we see, especially in that – uh, more white evangelical space about, well, I just don't, I, I don't see color. We're all, we're all God's children. It's like, well, there's some problems with that, right? So um, Dr. Jamar Tisby, it, it was great having you on. I appreciate your, your you helping us and our audience so much. Anything else I missed? Anything else that you want to add before I let you go? Well, I have an entire chapter devoted to Martin Luther King Jr. in my upcoming book, The Spirit of Justice. It's going to be available for pre-order starting Saturday, January 20th. So you can get that wherever books are sold and it will come out in September. And I hope I can be back on the show to talk about that in due time. And then in the meantime, to satisfy your reading interests, please do subscribe free or paid to my Substack footnotes. You just go to jamartisby.substack. Uh, I'm going to correct you on one thing. Uh, not free. Everyone, you should you should please chip in, pay the what I'm sure what five bucks, ten bucks a month, whatever it is. I I tell people often for our work as a nonprofit, many hands make light work. You know, we're not asking people to give a hundred bucks a month to something. If a thousand people give five bucks a month, that person who's doing the work that is so beneficial is taken care of. So please do what you can. Pay the five bucks a month. Make sure you subscribe the paid version of the Substack. It's important. And yes, please make a note, friends. I don't have a link here because it's not available yet, but on the 20th, pre-order the book. And I will also recommend strongly, if you have not read Color of Compromise, it is, I would argue it is canon for anyone who's trying to deconstruct and think about things differently. It is a must-read book. Yeah, there it is, Color of Compromise. It is powerful. It is at times gut-wrenching and it is hopeful. Um, and also eye-opening. So I appreciate the work that you're doing, and uh, we'll keep in touch tomorrow, as always. I'm sure I'll talk to you on the interwebs again when something crazy happens. So, <laughs> Yes, sir. Happy MLK Day. Thank you. You too. It's a pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King. They are... I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today 
signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, the, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize the shameful condition in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time 
to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time <laughs> to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time <laughs> to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. And those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. <laughs> there will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. And the marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, 
cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. And some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream 
that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day. This will be the day with all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. <laughs>